This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to John Fritzy Jr., who is a dedicated ham radio operator and a third-generation jeweler. He is passionate about both his avocation and his vocation, and on the cutting edge of each. His grandfather was the personal jeweler for the King of Denmark before he came to America to escape the Nazis. Amateur radio operators, Fritzi says, serve the public and promote international goodwill. Warming up for this podcast, I just learned some fascinating facts about jewelry. He's also a jeweler and jeweler designer. Welcome, John Fritzy. Well, thank you very much. Um, so what is it that you're mostly interested in as far as ham radio? Well, I know you're I, already interested in jewelry. I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like to just start out with what it is that's happening at Thatcher Park on June 24th and 25th. So Thatcher Park on uh, on the last weekend of June, uh, the Albany Amateur Radio Association and the Troy Amateur Radio Association, two clubs here in the area. Uh, there are a multitude of clubs, but these two particular clubs were joining forces and we're going to have a uh, emergency preparedness exercise up at Thatcher Park. And Field Day has been around, this is the 90th anniversary of it. Um, it is organized by the National Organization, uh, which is the American Radio Relay League. And I can give you a little bit of history on that after this, if you wish. Um, that has been in effect for since 1933. And for this particular exercise, there are generally 30,000 hams nationwide that participate in it. So that's about half Half of the ham population in the U.S. Um, this is a United States and Canada event. It is the largest single event emergency preparedness exercise in the world. Um, the the premise of the whole thing is to set up uh, stations uh, under austere type conditions. So we have portable antennas. We'll use non-commercial main power. Um, and we'll try to make as many contacts as we can within a 24-hour period. So that starts at 2 p.m. on Saturday and it goes until 2 p.m. on Sunday. And then we take everything down and um, go away and clean up the park and we're good back to normal again. So... The things that we do during this 24-hour event Well, is... wait, I'm going to interrupt you here okay, because sure. this is all just so natural to you, but I want to unpack a little of it for our okay, listeners. Sure. You mentioned that there are 30,000 hams who are going to participate, and that's half of the number in the United States. Just tell us what a ham is. Okay, so and- ham, ham, ham radio, okay, which is also amateur radio. Um, it is a hobby that's been around since the very beginning of radio. So we know that uh, back in the old days, back in the early 1900s and late 1800s, um, some people were experimenting with radio transmission, trying to get communications from different places in the world. So, you know, you've probably heard of guys like Nikola Tesla and Marconi and DeForest and Hertz and some of these guys that, uh, you know, worked on radio waves and stuff like that. Well, the early people that worked on radio 
uh, were not professionals. They were amateurs. So they were just people doing this as a hobby on the sideline. And as amateurs, that progressed into amateur radio. Um, the word ham came later, a few years later. And at that time, in the early 1900s, most of the communications was using Morse code, what we call the international Morse code. So ham came out because during the railroad days when uh, Morse code was being used, if you were a really poor sender of Morse code, they said you had a hand like a ham, like you were hitting the Morse code key with a hand, ham, excuse me, instead of your hand. So we became ham operators and we've kind of taken that to be a uh, kind of a compliment <laughs> now as opposed to an insult. So from, it was made as an insult and you've adopted <laughs> yeah, exactly. it. Just yeah, like, we, we just adopted it. It's I, all good. You know? I know that's like the queer community, you know, that used to be <laughs> an insult and now they've embraced it. Yeah. Well, now it's so, a, an embrace thing. Exactly. Yeah, how did you yourself, I looked up and it said 1978, you first became licensed. What what brought you into well, it? Well, um, at the time, if you remember back to the 70s, um, maybe you're too young for this, uh, but back in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, there was a big influx of the Citizens Band radio um, nationwide. OK, you had the trucker songs, you know, uh, what was it? C.W. McCaw, who had that trucker song that was real popular at the time. And, and there were trucker movies and stuff like that. And CB radio was publicized a lot. So at that time, there was an emergency group called REACT, which I can't remember what the acronym stands for anymore. Uh, but I was pretty involved in Albany County REACT. Uh, I was on the board of directors and stuff like that. And we would help people who were traveling up and down the North Ray and the Thruway with uh, communications if they needed to find gas or something like that in the 70s. Um, and at some point, I had a good friend of mine who was a ham radio operator, and he met me at a couple of different um, events that we were at. And he just walked up to me one day and said, you're going to become a ham radio operator. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? He says, I can just tell by talking to you. So I don't know, a year or so later, um, I, I actually went and got at that time uh, what they call the novice ticket through the Albany Amateur Radio Association. So since 1977, 1978, I've been licensed. Right now I'm an extra class, which is the highest class that you can have. So how uh, do you go through these steps? I mean, you there's a licensing process. You have to take tests. You have to you take, have to take courses. Tests. You have to you don't have to take courses. You can study on your own. Um, but, you know, I recommend that you take a course and a lot of the local clubs and you can search the local clubs. I'll, I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. Uh, but you can search all the local clubs and most of them will have a ham class or be able to recommend for you an amateur radio study class. Um, I'm a licensed instructor. Um, there's a bunch of guys in the Albany Club that are licensed instructors and we hold courses on a regular basis. So, you know, maybe once every year or two, we we hold a class. But there's classes going on continuously. And typically, we can get you a license within almost 48 hours. You do a little bit of studying on your own. You take the class over 48 hours. And then we, we actually give you the exam. We're licensed by the FCC to actually give you the exam. So, and it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an accepted exam. So once someone passes this exam and is licensed, what does that entitle the person to do? What okay, so, so right now, there are, there are three levels of... Uh, ham radio classes. There used to be more, but they've, the FCC has narrowed it down to three. So we have what they call the technician class, which is the lowest class. And then we have the general class, which is the next higher class, and then extra class, which is the which is the epitome. So technician class is what you would generally get on a 48-hour um, you know, class where you take your, your, your license, uh, your exam. They, that allows you 
mostly just VHF and UHF frequencies, FM uh, type communications, a little bit of digital, and then a teeny tiny little bit of sideband or, um, well, actually not sideband, but HF, what we call HF, lower frequencies. So the reason you don't get much HF frequencies as a technician is because these frequencies have worldwide communications. And the FCC, who is basically the lead organization worldwide with, with things like amateur radio, stuff like that, they're not the only ones. Every single country has their own equivalent to an FCC. So because of the, um, the novice type uh, technician class, it doesn't have a lot of experience and stuff like that. You don't want somebody transmitting on HF where he can talk all around the world and mess up really professional communications. So they limit you to the VHF, which is local. And then after a little while, you you know, you kind of learn a little bit more about radio. You learn a little bit more like electronics. You learn a little bit more about the roles and stuff like that. And then you can upgrade and take another class of license to general class or extra class, which gives you then worldwide privileges. Wow. So one of the things you wrote when you were sending out news about this upcoming event is you said that it it contributes to international goodwill. Just how right. how does that how does that work? Well, you know, think about it. Um, because as an amateur radio operator, um, I can pick up my radio at any point and I can talk anywhere in the world. In, English is really the international business language, and it always has been. It probably always will be. So when you talk to a ham radio operator, it doesn't make any difference if they're Russian, um, if they're uh, South American, if they're African, if they're Asian. It doesn't, doesn't make any difference. They'll all speak some English. So you can carry on a, a minuscule conversation conversation, uh, you know, about ham radio. Well, you know, when a country uh, allows amateur radio, it allows people from all different uh, uh, backgrounds, all different types of religion, all different types of political backgrounds and stuff like that to be able to communicate back and forth. So it does promote international goodwill. One of the things that happens is if a country decides they're going to go to war or they're going to make a mess out of something, you know, um, they will shut down amateur uh, communications. And the reason they do that is they don't want you having communications with other people in the world. It's only been the last few years that China has opened up communications worldwide. North Korea is one of the only countries where they do not allow amateur radio. And there's goodwill for that, or good reason for that. They don't want people to know what's going on in the rest of the world. How about in Russia? Can you communicate with people? Oh, yeah. I've spoke to to many Russians over the years. Uh, Right now, there's a little bit of animosity because of the stuff that's going on with Ukraine. But, you know, the amateur community, we don't really we don't really talk about politics. Okay, it's not about a politic thing. It's more about, you know, um, hey, uh, the weather here is X. The weather there is Y. Um, you know, it's the middle of winter and, you know, geez, it's, um, you know, 75 degrees here in Florida, let's say. Um, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. Or we talk about radios or we talk about antennas or we talk about our families. I remember one time I was talking on the radio and I was uh, talking to a guy for quite a quite a man of 15, 20 minutes or so. It turns out he was a, uh, a Polish air pilot flying from Poland to New York State, New York City, um, um, JFK. And they had an amateur radio right on the airplane. And we're sitting there talking back and forth. And we're, you know, it's kind of interesting that you're talking to this guy from Poland and listening to, about his family and all that stuff. And he's in an airplane flying. 
<laughs> yeah, that is. So it's, it's really wild. Do you have like repeat conversations with some of these people, like develop a relationship over time or is it oh, just? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Actually, you do. There's certain there's certain ones that there's certain people that, you know, on a regular basis, um, you know, worldwide. Um, there's also what we call ham fests um, where people will come from all different areas and meet. Um, kind of like a flea market thing and take some classes on technology and stuff like that. And so you'll meet people that, you know, the biggest ham fest that just happened was Zinnia in Ohio, which is near Dayton, Ohio. Um, and there was, I think it was a record this year, like 30,000 hams showed up worldwide just for that one ham fest. So when you mean, when you say showed up, what they're not there in person. They're like, what, they're no, no, radio. No, they are, they're there in person. Oh, they are. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, they fly in from all around the world. Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, yeah. And there's big dinners. There's big celebrations. You're meeting people that you've talked to a million times, but you've never met face to face. It's really a lot of fun. So uh, were you there for been, this? I did, I did not go this year. But you've been to uh, other ones? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been to Dayton multiple times uh, for ham fest. It's probably the, it's like the Mecca for ham radio. Dayton, Ohio. I wonder why yeah. that is. Well, because it's the middle of the country, I think. Oh, I think that's uh, the reason why, well, you know. This friend way back when, when you were doing the CB, helping out people with, you know, running out of gas on the Northway, the friend that said to you, I know, I just know you're going to become a ham. Is that there's like a certain personality is it because you were like helping other people or I think yeah I think because I was helping other people I think that um, I find that um, public service is a big part for me of amateur radio you know you may have seen um, that I'm section manager for Eastern New York to my mm -hmm. non-paying I tell people it's my non-paying job so I'm actually in control of 15 counties in Eastern New York so I deal with the National Weather Service I deal with the New York State Department of Health I deal with the Red Cross. I deal with, uh, I don't know, every single fire department, uh, sheriff, ambulance. Uh, I deal with Westchester County is one of my counties. So Indian Point nuclear plant. And right now I'm dealing with uh, what's happening right now is we, we've become uh, pretty locked into FEMA and also um, something called, now this I just found out, Something called Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. We've been tasked with, uh, in case there is an international um, uh, hacker for uh, the Internet, uh, as amateur radio operators, we've been tasked to come up with a plan to place a uh, Internet back up and running as quickly as possible. Oh, my gosh. But when you went through this long list of people or agencies that you work with, like the Department of Health or the Red Cross or local fire departments, what what is the role there for ham radio? How, well, just give us one okay. example. Okay, so a lot of times, um, you know, for example, let's take the Department of Health. OK, so mm -hmm. you got Albany Med, you got St. Peter's, you got hospitals up and down the Hudson Valley. Most hospitals have an amateur radio station in them. And the reason they have that is because if communications should go down, and sometimes we have lost telephone in this area, even cell service, you're only going to get so many hours before the batteries on the cell towers die. So if cells, if uh, telephone service goes down, we can be tasked to go into a hospital and help communications between hospitals. So we've done a couple of exercises where um, we've done communications between, let's say, Schenectady Hospital, which uh, I forget, that's Ellis, um, and then St. Peter's and then Albany Med and then over into um, 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 
Saratoga County, you know, so the different, get all the hospitals kind of talking to each other. And we do message handling back and forth to practice. Like, what would it be like if I had to send uh, some injured people to from this hospital to that hospital? Or what if I need these drugs and we're out of them in Albany Med and we need them in St. Peter's? Um, and But nobody, nobody can get back and forth. So we'll do those practice exercises, just like, you know, just like volunteer firemen do or, uh, you know, hey, police do volunteer or um do volunteer exercises and stuff like that just to become proficient in in uh, helping in an emergency. So basically our thing is communications. Yeah. And I guess I had a false idea in this digital age that really radio was kind of old fashioned. And oh, there no, was no, no and <laughs> that you would like we like to say it's not your grandpa's <laughs> hobby anymore. Yeah, okay. Because okay. it's all technical. It's yeah. all technical. Uh, some of the digital communications we do is extremely high tech. Um, satellite communications, I've I've been dabbling in that for years. That's a lot of fun. Uh, the di- different digital communications, uh, uh, television, we we do. Uh, it's just it's just it's very very high tech. Yeah, I can see that. And this idea that you're still in the mode of back in the 1920s, where you do think of ham radio operators jumping in in an emergency, you still do that, but in a different way. There's oh, yeah, still, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I like to say that, you know, when we help out in an exercise, even if it's a, a real exercise, like so you think about um, uh, Hurricanes Irene and Lee that came up through the uh, Hudson Valley a few years back. Um, well, I think about 11 years ago now. And then also, um, what was it? Um, uh, I can't think Sandy? of one that went into. Sandy. Yeah, that went. Yeah, Sandy. When I had to go down to Westchester County for that one to help out. Um, you know, when you see exercise, when you see things like this, this disasters that happen and stuff like that. A lot of our communications is just voice. It's it's point A to point B, you know, passing passing information back and forth about what we need at this um, hospital site or at this uh, shelter and what have you. But sometimes it gets very, very technical and you're sending, you know, digital communications and stuff like that, which is much faster and much more accurate. Um, so there's a there's a lot a lot of really interesting stuff that you can do to help the public. I also like to tell people that we bring our own equipment it doesn't cost the public a dime we do our own uh, hours we keep track of everything so we know what we're we're worth per hour per man hour uh, in emergency service i think new york state right now is about 55 dollars an hour wow and you have each one of you has your own equipment what does that consist of so it depends on how uh how much you want to get involved in it so most ham radio operators or amateur radio operators will start out with a handheld uh little walkie-talkie kind of thing okay and they'll do some public service you'll do a walkathon you'll do a run a marathon or something like that where you're stationed along the path and you're helping out with communications making sure nobody falls down and gets hurt and all that other kind of stuff um and as you as you grow with the hobby you tend to get more and more expensive, which it's not a cheap hobby, but what hobby is today? Um, you know, you'll get more expensive gear that'll allow you to do worldwide communications or different antennas. Um, you know, I put radios in my car. Uh, my wife's got a radio in her car. Uh, we got some wire antennas we put up or vertical antennas. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just whatever you want to do. I mean, I have satellite antennas with an azimuth and an elevation rotor that I, I play with. Oh my you know, god! It's really, it's really cool. It's really cool <laughs> to hear the International Space Station come over. A lot of people don't realize that every astronaut is a, is a ham radio operator. Really? 
Yes, even the ones that just went up in the dragon capsule. Oh my gosh. And do you communicate with them? I have. I did a uh, school contact a bunch of years ago for um, uh, Donald P. Sutherland School over in East Greenbush, where we did an International Space Station contact. There was a group of us. We uh, picked it up over Northwest Territory. We lost it over the Azores. 17 minutes. And do you communicate through Morse code? Or nope, do- no nope, voice. It was all voice. Oh, my uh, gosh. Each one of the kids in the school got to pick up the mic and talk to an astronaut. Oh and it was it was very cool because <laughs> the astronauts, you, you give them the questions ahead of time in case you lose communications, but just, just that so the kids don't get disappointed. But it was very cool because, you know, little Johnny would get on the mic and the astronaut would say, well, Johnny, you know, we go to the bathroom here or we eat this or we do because these are these are little kids. This is what they're interested in. Yeah. Okay? Oh my they're gosh. not interested. In, they're not interested in, uh, you know, the technical stuff. They want to see like, well, you know, what are you seeing when you look out the International Space Station window? What do you see? That's the kind of stuff they want to know. Oh. What do you eat up there? You know, I mean, stuff like that. It's really fun. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Well, we have to get back to Thatcher Park. I just I just could keep going down this path. But tell us what a visitor might experience it's open to the public. Yeah, um, absolutely. What what sort of things are going to be going on? Okay. Well, typically, um, what happens is this this year, um, and, and we've done this before in the past. Uh, Friday afternoon, about noon time, one o'clock, something like that. We go up and we start setting up antennas and and get prepared for um, starting on Saturday, starting at two p.m. on Saturday. Um, the public will usually come in um, on Saturday and Sunday when we're actually operating because they'll hear the generator running and stuff like that, and and, you know, we'll show the people around to the, to the uh, different antennas, the stations. We'll show people operating. We actually have something called a GOTA station, which means get on the air. Okay, G-O-T-A. And we can take somebody who has an interest in just maybe a little mic fright. Um, you know, maybe never did this before. We get them, we sit them down in front of the radio. We have them make a contact. And usually the, the look on their face is amazing when they're talking to somebody in California or they're talking to somebody in Florida. And it's like, there's no wires between us. You know, it's, it's, it's not like people think it's like cell phone, but it's not like cell phone, cell phone. You got wires. You're only going between your, your phone to the tower. Not that that is all wires. This is no wires. That is. And what's amazing with a cell phone, you know who you're calling, you're dialing the number. But with this, it's just like a random find of whoever appears. (laughs) I always always say amateur radio, the difference between amateur radio and cell phone, cell phone is talking to your friends. Amateur radio is making new friends. Oh, I like that distinction. And it goes back to your idea of the smaller world. Exactly. Um, so I just, our time is going so fast and there were so many things I wanted to ask you. I'm just going to see, I told you half an hour is going to be too short. I know, but <laughs> I looked up about your own life outside of this and you're a third generation jeweler. And I, I yeah, your website has a picture of your grandfather. My granddad Ma- was a jeweler for the King of Denmark before yeah. he came to the, yeah. came to this country. Let's yeah. just hear about him, Magnus Fritzi, and how you became, did you know him, your grandfather? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, he died. He died pretty young, somewhere, somewhere around his age 60. So I was only six or seven years old. Uh, but I, I I do remember him. My grandmother lived until pretty old. Um, and what kind yeah, of was, jewelry did he make for the king of Denmark? 
Well, I mean, whatever the king wanted, I guess. Uh, you know, gold, platinum, you know, gen- genuine stones. I mean, I, I'm, my my thought is, first of all, the jeweler for the king of Denmark. Okay, Denmark's like Rhode Island. Okay, it's but not like it's still I know, royal. It's cool. Yeah, okay, it's still royal. but it's 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 a small country, even though it's it's got a big role in the in the in the world uh, politics in the last few years because it's a, you know, it's kind of a middle middle of ground, almost like Switzerland and those other countries yeah, that yeah. Uh, you know kind of kind of go between these other countries. But you know, my grandfather made uh, a lot of silver jewelry. He used to do. He used to, and then when he came to New York, he worked for uh, George Jensen in New York, so he did a lot of silver work for them. And he came what, up. What all, brought him to? the united states is there a story uh, think, uh, there the, the, fear, the fear of world war ii oh yeah um, you know a lot of my a lot of my relatives did fight in the danish underground to get jews out of europe safely um you know there were some relatives that were killed by the nazis because they got caught and stuff like that um you know it was a very sad time in the, in the world but you know i feel i feel kind of proud that i had relatives that that fought in the underground getting getting people out but my grandparents left um because they were young and um they did not and the interesting thing is they did not have to go through ellis island uh they went directly into the docks of new york city because they either came first or second class and i only found that out recently um because he had a job when he came here he was not he was not just as a as a uh immigrant he was he was employed before he even got here um and at some point they moved up to Albany. And so we've been in, we've been in the Albany area since twenties uh, or thirties, something like that. So your grandfather passed that down to your father, father and yep, you father. learned from your father. I learned from my dad. Right. And, you know, I learned, I learned very typically what you call the European style, um, which means, you know, 15, 10, 15 years of apprenticeship, um, very, very technical. Um, and then what's happened in the last few years, you know, I got kind of bored with doing the, the average stuff that a lot of jewelers do. So I got involved in, um, computer-aided design, so we do that. Um, I'm a graduate gemologist with a GIA. That's the benchmark in the world for, for uh, uh, gemology. So basically, it's like a doctorate in gems. And you know, now we're doing a lot of laser work. So I've got three lasers now on the premises. Um, so very, very technical work. It's not, it's not, again, it's like almost like ham radio. It's not your grandpa's jewelry work anymore. <laughs> I always tell people my grandfather would roll over in his grave if he saw what I was doing now, because you've looked online, you've seen some of the yeah, pictures. Yeah, I have. It's amazing. And our readers will be able to see the ring that you're wearing in the picture in the of picture, you, exactly. which is yeah. remarkable. So I love this idea. I see like a real parallel here in your life because you were schooled in the old way, learning as an apprentice for more than a decade. But yet you've jumped into this modern technology to take those skills. And the same with a ham radio. You think of radio as kind of old fashioned, but yet you're doing it in this way that's really. It's very, very cutting edge. Revolutionary. Yeah. So, wow. And. I don't know if you have closing thoughts for us. It's just our time has flown by. <laughs> I know. Um, I told you it was going yeah, to. Yeah, you were well, right. I, you were I right. I think the one thing I would like to just finish is if anybody's interested in uh, more on ham radio, uh, they can Google um, ARRL or the American Radio Relay League or something like that. It'll come right up. Believe me, it'll come right up. And there's a lot of information there. And, you know, some of your, your listeners are welcome to email me directly. Uh, it's, it's K2QI at ARRL.org. Um, so, you know, feel free and I'll, I'll answer you. I'm, I'm good about that. Um, if anybody's inter- interested in the class, let me know and I'll, I'll hook you up with the class. 
Wow, that's great. And I just have to ask, what is that K2QI? Where does that okay, come from? Uh, every amateur radio gets a every amateur radio operator gets a call sign. Okay, okay that's issued by the Federal Communications uh, Commission. So mine is K2QI. My wife's is K2QIL. Um, you know, and, and uh, the, so your the, you wife know, does this too. Oh yeah, she does it too. Oh wow! I yeah. I can imagine having a hobby that's so all consuming. It would be good to have your mate in the same well, the same. I always kid people that everything I do costs double because I have to buy something for my wife, too. Yeah, but, but you're in it together. Things together, exactly. That's great. Oh, my exactly. goodness. And one last question. I just wondered with Thatcher Park, and I know you've had it there before, is it because of the height of it that you choose that? or well, is there? here's the thing. A lot of people don't realize that Thatcher Park was originally designed as a, uh, as a um, uh, place for um, if something happened in Albany, like a, like a chemical disaster or anything like that, that Thatcher Park would be where they would evacuate people to an evacuation site. Because think about this. They've got bathrooms there. they got cooking facilities there. They have those um, those pavilions that you could hide underneath, uh, you know, with, with uh, you know, protect yourself from the elements and stuff like that. So that's what, and back in the 40s and 50s, that was the whole thought. Actually, in the 50s, I think it was when Thatcher Park started. Uh, that's what it was thought to be, was an evacuation site. So we thought way back, I can't tell you, maybe the 70s, I was one of the persons instrumental in getting us there the first time. And we've been there ever since, every year. And they are thrilled to have us. We're the only group that can camp in there other than the Boy Scouts. <laughs> well... <laughs> And they always come around. They always come around and get a. They always come around in the evening and get a free hot dog. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I have learned so much, and this has been great. And I hope it doesn't rain. Although it still works in the rain, right? You still it works in the rain. We've been yeah. there. There's been days that it's been so cold. I've been wrapped up in a sleeping bag all day, and uh, it works when it's hot out too. But it's cool. It's nicer when it's cool because there's no mosquitoes. Yeah, and this the haze and smoke from the wildfires has oh, cleared. Yeah, yeah. So cleared out. So did that interfere with your radio signals when no, that was not going a, on? Not no. at all. But interesting, interesting when you ask about that. Um, an eclipse, a solar eclipse, does. How how so? Because it makes it like night, and when the when the uh, when the sun is gone, the radio waves are different. They're they're a different frequency at night than they are in the daytime. I never knew that. Yep. But That's it, why like uh, your AM radio at night, you know, you can go on AM radio at night and you'll hear AM from all over the country. But during the daytime, those frequencies are too noisy. So you can only hear local stations. Oh, my goodness. You are just a wealth of information. I don't want to end this conversation, <laughs> but thank you so much. Sure. Anytime. 